Hello, welcome to the Soundworks Collection video series. I'm Michael Coleman. This week, I'm excited to have supervising sound editor and sound designer Richard King and re-recording mixer Gary Rizzo, who recently collaborated with director Christopher Nolan on his latest science fiction action thriller film, Tenet. Tenet was released in September of 2019 and was the first major Hollywood release since the coronavirus pandemic started. It's now available on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray, DVD, and digital services. And if you haven't seen the film, you should definitely check it out as today's discussion is gonna cover many of the key plot points and exciting sound moments in the film. So first off, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, I love to find out when did you first get alerted that this was gonna be uh, Chris's next film? Well, I was alerted when I read it at the trades, which is usually how I find out about these things. He, he, <laughs> he likes to keep, uh, keep his projects under wraps until he's ready to, ready to go and um, so I found out about it like that, and then uh, was able to meet with him a few times when he was in pre-production here in LA um, on the Warner's lot, and um, have a few chats about after I'd read the script, uh, what you know, what the <clears throat> kind of what his thoughts were as related to sound and how this uh, this notion of inversion uh, of reverse entropy would. Um, how that would be re related to sound. And we basically just batted around some ideas and um, which were just, you know, first impression sort of ideas. And uh, then he went off to shoot and he was gone. He was out of the country for most of that year and uh, got back to uh, California in um, later in the year, September or October. To do some shooting, and uh, by that time I was beginning to get uh, some recording done, and um, uh, just for my notes that I had made when I was reading the script, what I thought, what kind of sounds I thought I would need. I was starting to get some recording done, starting to kind of get into it, um, but I was still on another show until the end of uh, the end of October. So uh, started Tenet at the beginning of November, and and we finished it when Gary last June, middle of June. That's true. Yeah, I um, I read about it in the trades as well. And typically at that point, Richard and I start texting each other. Uh, Did you see this? Sending the article across. And, and um, uh, I rarely get to read the script ahead of time. Uh, Richard sometimes does. So when I hear if he's got some inside information, again, I go to Richard, like, what do you know? And of course, he's held under... Uh, you know, NDAs and, and all that. But uh, I don't typically see it until we start at the first temp, which is after Richard's been working on it for a number of weeks. Um, it's not uncommon on uh, Chris's films while he's still in production to get an email from the first assistant picture editor to say, hey, um, you know, here's some dailies that Chris is concerned about you know, and to take an initial crack at those. Uh, and I collaborate pretty closely with uh, our dialogue editor, Dave Bach, who's amazing. And um, we start to do some preliminary cleanup, but I don't have any picture to reference. I don't have anything. It's all, you know, only, you know, right off of uh, Willie Burton's recorder on this one. And um, so I don't really see the film or know much about it until we get to that first temp. That's incredible. Um... Did it, did it ever come up to you that this, I love this line in the film, which is a, don't try to understand it, feel it, which uh, is a great kind of way to, to get into this film, which um, like, what, what are, what are some of the things that 
Christopher does or doesn't do when it comes to uh, giving you guys direction, if you know in, in, impressions of direction or you know just overall you know things that he might have been thinking about for a long time. I, I usually get a few comments uh, beforehand, but the way we've always worked is I just start and um, you know begin on a scene, begin on a scene that's important or that the first scene I, I receive. And uh, Chris has a look, and if there's feedback he wants to give me, he does. And uh, so we kind of work like that. It's sort of like a um, audiovisual spotting session where I'm 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 running things by him, running ideas by him, um, and he guides the process. And um, so by the time we get to the first tent mix, which is our probably our single biggest hurdle in the entire process of making one of his films and the post-production side and the sound post-production side um we kind of we we have a grasp we have a have a grasp on all the issues we think we feel like we you know have a have a language we have a um uh have a language for this film and um uh because we've we've done this back and forth by the time we get to the temp for two or three months um so it's a it's a excellent way to work because it allows me to, to input my ideas, and but it gives Chris plenty of time to either uh, agree or shoot them down or guide me in a different direction or uh, suggest something that would be better. Um, so it's uh, it's you know allows him to react to something specific rather than to simply an idea that I'm floating yeah. verbal. What about for you, Gary? Because my um, my understanding is like. Well, what temp dub used to mean before is a little different than what temp dub means in terms of how you guys are working. Um, what's your impression of this process? Why does it benefit how you guys collaborate? Um, yeah, Chris's first temp mix is different than most other first temps for most other movies in that, um, first of all, I think he likes having the mixers come in cold, not having seen it at all, because I think he likes to see the initial reaction to it. It's kind of uh, not that we're the first preview audience, but he gets to see immediately, like, even though um, we do have a lot of information that we're managing in front of us, he likes to see what our gut reaction is and, you know, kind of proceed with that in mind. You certainly know, um, you get the idea of triage, you know, what has to be addressed yeah. right away and you get on it. And that first temp really winds up being the foundation um, for our entire Final mix, you know, and we are working progressively. Every mix that we do is um, based on the previous mix. We are not starting over at any point. You know, those days are long behind us. But um, it's really the first week of the final. The first temp is the first week of the final. Um, and in this case, it was very peculiar because it was in, you know, the second or third week of March that we did right. it. And right as the world is shutting down, you know, we are in the critical, uh, a critical phase of our creative process. And so we're wide eyed for a variety of reasons, not just are we looking at, you know, a cinematic piece of mastery that is wildly complicated, but there's also a pandemic that nobody in the room has experienced before. We don't know what's happening. Um, what we usually do with Temp One is that it's a, 
it's like a nine day or a 10 day experience where we go through the whole film in the first five. And then we take a look at it ourselves. We work on it for another four. And then, you know, he shows it to the studio at that point. But by the time we got to day three, word was out that, um, the not only is the lot going to shut down, but the world is shutting down. And so, um, you know, Chris directed us to kind of put the pedal to the metal and address, you know, the, the, with the broadest of strokes to get through the end of that week. So at the end of Friday, regular working day, Friday, we had a pass of the film and then basically went into shutdown. That was incredible. Um, yeah. We got an eight day, eight day temp done in four days. And um, yeah, basically and Chris was really happy with it. Yeah. In your mind, was it like the idea like, oh, if we needed to, this would be a version? Like, was that ever a discussion? Like, oh, we have a version? Or like, it was just, you guys had to stop no, and figure out no. the next step? It, it, we, okay. it was always going to continue. And, we, and okay. we had set up, you know, we had already kind of discussed uh, methodologies. Um, we figured out a plan for, for yeah. m working remotely from, okay. from that next month, following Monday, after we finished the temp on, or yeah. at least for the next, until we could get back to the lot. Yeah, it's been incredible to hear how everyone navigated that that moment when they had to figure out the setup. I guess Gary, you set up a, a mix in your home, is that right? Yeah, I've got a. I've always been a home theater enthusiast, and so I've got a you know a nice setup that I enjoy with the family at at home, and quickly turned that around so that it was a much more of a you know workable environment. I had always been able to do little things in there, yeah. but not anything quite like this so i did a couple of quick upgrades um but we were within richard when was temp two was it two weeks later maybe not even two weeks later that you know there were already changes and there were already notes and chris was sending information as to what he wanted to have changed and new music cues were coming in and um life goes on so yeah, life goes on, and, and we figured out, we devised a plan. You know, Tina collaborated, our, our post-supervisor, and um, Richard started, you know, making changes from home to the effects mix. He would send me a stem. I would integrate that with updated music cues as well as updated dialogue and conforms, and, you know, all the editors were in on it, and I would put it all together into a single 5-1, send it out, and... It was definitely screened in the Ross Theater. The Ross Theater is the, the Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. you know, premium screening room on the lot with 500 seats. You can social distance pretty well in that room. So Chris showed it to executives that were all in masks and and mm -hmm. and spread out in the room. It went right from my theater right to the Ross Theater, and um, and for a temp process, it worked incredibly well. He was really quite happy. That's awesome. That's, that's great to hear. It just shows that, you know, just when you think you're out of out of luck or resources, there's always a backup plan that we can devise to keep these the show must go on. Um, yeah, I don't think we missed a beat. Um, yeah. Warner's engineering was great at getting everybody the equipment they needed and um, and set up. Uh, they lent me enough gear that I could set up a, a little studio at home, 5-1 studio. Nice. Um, and... Um, Andrew Bach, who works with me, um, my assistant, he's really got to think of a different title for Andrew because he's <laughs> so much more than an assistant. Um, uh, he, but he, he kind of, uh, you know, figured out the protocols and um, yeah. So we, we just, the following Monday or Tuesday took a couple of days to get everything set up. We were, we were back, back editing. That's great. Um, I love, 
the opening scene to every and all of Christopher Nolan's films. And this one is no, uh, it's no letdown. It, it is uh, an incredible just set piece. Um, I'd love for you guys to talk about the transition of this tuning up of the opera, which let me know if I'm wrong, but like, is there like a sense of kind of like this, like kind of what you did with like a shepherd tone approach where like it just keeps building? What was, what was kind of, the mood, the tone, what, what were the elements of setting up this first scene with the opera house? Because to me, every time I watch it, it just, I get so excited because it's um, visually and sonically just so, I don't know, it's intense. <laughs> It's a great metaphor for the beginning of a of a of a of a film. The, you know, warming up. You're there. Everyone's getting ready, and uh, I, Gary, you might have been better been familiar with this than I do. But I, 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 it was production. There's a production track of orchestra tuning, which they shot mm -hmm. when they were there, and uh, and then Ludwig did a kind of a preamble to that and, and embellished it and kind of rounded it out. Um, um, and that was those are the two elements really i think right gary production yeah, yeah that's really ludwig. it and and as we progressed into it um ludwig's had some magical i think there's a deep synth that's you know yeah. buried underneath there that just brought something unique to it so it's mostly ludwig stuff i really hope michael that you're able to get ludwig to yeah. contribute to this if you can he really has brought um, something special and something unique to the Chris Nolan um, mixes and the soundtracks that that, uh, that are going out with these movies. He um, he really brought it. Um, but by God, there's one thing that Chris Nolan likes. It's authenticity. Uh, that conductor tapping his baton on that stand, that's production. That is wow. the sync recording of that uh, baton tap. <laughs> that is definitely something Chris likes is authenticity. I, I sent him 20 baton taps. Nope, <laughs> and he didn't like any of them. <laughs> and the 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 one in production had you know noise behind it and everything, but Gary just he cleaned it up and made it beautiful and um, yeah, and it, it's a perfect yeah. sound. It's a perfect sound. That's amazing. Yeah, that that first guitar hit from Ludwig's score when it really drops, it's just like <clears throat> the brakes have come off and yeah. we're following the protagonist like into something that we have no 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 concept of yet of what what it means which to me is just the exciting aspect of of the story um so the the first reveal of that reverse bullet shot i feel like in the opera it's introducing some mechanics that i, I think you guys re, you know revisit throughout the film but was that the first time that you guys had to figure out what the reverse bullet and and how music was treated and and just kind of the world for you guys yeah we that opening sequence was uh, was the prologue, which was released in um, yep. previous year, 
And uh, so we mixed it in December, early December. And um, yeah, that was kind of the first test case for what, you know, what later we were going to embellish and build upon. Um, and and uh, yeah, so we went through a lot of iterations of that and a lot of elements and tried different things. And there were a whole, there was a whole wide range of different approaches that we experimented with. Um, and then I think finally settled upon the, the sort of best and simplest one that simply tells the story of where the bullet is at any given moment, whether mm -hmm. it's in the gun or it's ricocheting or it's going through the, uh, the, the guy, uh, uh, the SWAT vest. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a, that took a quite a bit of time to get that right. Cause we really wanted to kind of you know, nail something down and not and, and create something that we knew that we would be close to later so that in the, ultimately when the feature was released with that sequence in it, uh, we wouldn't have deviated too much, you know? Mm. And I think we did. We, we kind of, we, it, it all evolved a bit, that whole concept of reverse, of reverse entropy and especially as related to guns. Away. We don't have to kill these people. Because you really want the sequence of events to be clearly in reverse. But when you fire a gun forward, it happens, it all happens very fast. The, mm -hmm. the mechanics, the the um you know the the uh the the bullet going off bullet exiting the 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 barrel so we had to kind of pull those elements apart or those sounds apart and then reverse them or put them in the opposite order and um yeah it was uh <laughs> it was a great mind exercise trying to think in inverted kind of yeah th think, um you know, uh, inverted, but using forward sounds. Exactly. Yeah. Is, is this another John Fasal special or do you guys, where, where, where do you guys go to record your guns? I mean, did, did you go back and do some new stuff or is it stuff you have? Yeah, we did. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously we didn't record them inverted, but they, we, we did mostly the guns for the, um, the battle scene in the end. Okay. Um, uh, we did a gun shoot with John and, and Eric Potter. We wanted a real kind of atmospheric feel to the guns, a really, uh, we wanted to go out to the set they were shooting at in, uh, in the desert, but um, it, it didn't seem practical. And we have a really good range that we like to use that has um, canyons on three sides. It's kind of a box canyon. You're shooting into a box canyon. And uh, within that box canyon, you can get all different kinds of and links of um, reverberations and echoes. Mm -hmm. So we, <clears throat> we did a lot of miking experiments you know, placing a lot of mics quite far away, a hundred yards or 200 yards away and to capture those, uh, reverberations. That's um, great. It needed to have that sound of a city, kind of a city environment, you know? Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention too, Kevin O'Connell is our, our, the other re-recording mixer working along you. Gary, how did, how did between the two of you, uh, break up who, who was responsible for what? He's he, Kevin's great. And Kevin brought a really good energy to the mix, you know, having been, you know, in every chair that there is to sit in, Kevin brought something special. You know, he did all that back in the day, mixing 
jets on Top Gun. And, uh, you know, I was tickled to find out that he would be uh, collaborating with us. So he had the effects and the music and, uh, and I had dialogue. And, uh, but I will say that as a crew, it really is one of the most collaborative crews between the three of us, Richard and Kevin and myself, where we are throwing ideas back and forth to each other all the time. So it really yeah. is, um, it's a collective, a really unique collective that I so appreciate that. That's you really, I find after working on all these movies for all these years, that's when you get the best result mm. is really when you're working with not too big of a group, but you're working with a tight group that really can get along well and has a natural shorthand. And we all have the same goal in mind. And especially when you've got somebody that's as smart uh, as, as Chris guiding all of us and directing us through it, it's, you get the, the best possible result. That, yeah, that, I, I totally agree. It was, it was just a, it's a great to collaborate with Gary. I love working with Gary and, 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 and Kevin as well. And, and it just, it, it all felt very as tense as it could be between, you know, the pandemic and, and, and work stresses. Um, we had a lot of fun and we had a lot of, it was a very creative free flowing, you know, we were always talking about ideas and, um, uh, you know, Kevin's brilliant at what he does and, and jumping back and forth between music and sound effects and, and Gary's just the best. Uh, he, he's, you know, tenacious at uh, digging out syllables and just cleaning up the dialogue, which is, um, you know, given the IMAX cameras and, oh, yeah. and all the, the exterior locations. Uh, <laughs> Let's not forget the masks. Really <laughs> we'll get into we will do, we'll do a whole master class on uh on it um yeah, yeah gary's the mask guy if yeah you, no chris <laughs> is the mask guy i try to get yeah, it out yeah. of the mask <laughs> um well, so i mean obviously like we introduced the reverse bullet but then like we really lean into it when we get to the firing range which to me is just like just chills like it's it's that moment when the protagonist recognizes this is not what i expected this obviously is something bigger than anyone could imagine. What was it like having a, the second chance of now really spending time being patient? Because like the sound in that gun range to me is uh, is unique and, and it has a special kind of approach to it too. Yeah. Well, again, we 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 want to kind of want to reverse engineer the you know the the events of firing a weapon, um, ending with almost like a punch in the hand as the bullet seats back into the shell casing mm -hmm. in the, in the gun. Aim it and pull the trigger. It's empty. Aim it. So it, yeah, it was about uh, uh, doing some reverse stuff. I think the ricochet, there was some reverse kind of high-end element that, uh, that represented the, the bullet the bullet popping out of the wall. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it was, we just kind of, we kind of worked it until it felt right. And, and that's, you know, another example of not overthinking it, just working and working and working until, yeah, that feels right. That feels like I'd imagine that would feel. <laughs> yeah. As right. much as you can imagine it. Um, uh, and yeah, that was, that was the time where we really had to kind of, um, orally explain what was happening, yeah. as well as 
the visual explains it, but we wanted to, you know, make that as as uh, um, uh, uh, recognizable to people as possible. Exactly what the sequence of events were. Yeah, so right. that- recognizable, but at the same time having its own uniqueness. Where, yeah. I distinctly remember uh, the mechanics of that gun, the actual workings of that gun, where you couldn't have it, the mechanics sound like it was going backwards. You wanted that to feel like it was actually functioning on your dimension, that it was actually moving forward, but the event of the bullet coming in backwards into a catch, that, just watching that process come together was pretty special. Right, because the the guns the guns not inverted, the bullet was inverted. Right. So uh, it, we were kind of, you know, combining two ideas there into one, one little meal. <laughs> but what an opportunity, you know, that Richard was presented with to have basically the entire foundation of the movie summed up in one simple, what you think is a simple sound effect that winds up right. being one of the most complicated sound effects that you can. Do something you're also familiar with as a gunshot at the movies that actually you have to sell the idea of reverse entropy with that sound effect. Like, round of applause for Richard on that. <laughs> um, when, when we get along and further along into the well, I, let me say this the second viewing for me was really exciting because I, was, I wasn't focusing as much on story, I was just listening to the soundtrack. And something I noticed is when you guys are in the spotting stages, how was it to work with Ludwig this time? What was maybe different? What is spotting like on Tenant? I've never worked with Ludwig before, so uh, we we uh, we kind of worked with him like we've worked always worked with with Hans on Chris's films in that we don't really communicate a lot. He does his thing and mm. we do our thing, and um, uh, you know Chris doesn't want anybody to hold back. It, it, I I when I'm working on the film when I'm pre-dubbing the sound effects. I don't play the music. I just play the sound effects. I I, I pretend like that's going to be the movie. So because I, I want that I want that effects feel, I want that sound feel to live fully and three-dimensionally on and be able to stand on its own. Um, uh, we embellish it and change it and rethink things, you know, through the course of the mix of course, but but when I go to the first day of the temp, first temp dub, I want to present that as you know, as a three-dimensional world that can stand alone by itself without music. Mm-hmm. Ludwig's doing the same thing, I think. So so uh, that seems to be what Chris wants. He wants everybody to bring everything they got to the table. And um, he likes to keep hearing the world through the music. He doesn't like to kind of push it too far into the background. Mm-hmm. He likes to still feel that sense of reality and, and, and production and, um, you know, sound around you, sound sounds of the world. Um, so, you know, and, and Ludwig, his, his material was awesome. It was just so, uh, so powerful, but also so, um, um, could also be very transparent in a funny way. I mean, there, there are, uh, um, it's not thick, if, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. It's, his, his work he did on, on Tenet was, um, uh, was just driving and, and so exciting. And uh, the first time we heard the music for the prologue, it was just knocked out. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah, I found that Ludwig's music um, certainly had a, a a breath to it. It had a set of lungs where it would certainly hit, and it would hit big, but then it would come back, and then it would hit back again, and then it would tuck back again. It would certainly um, – uh, it, it felt like it its lungs were 
moving as we were going through it. And the dynamic translated incredibly well. And I think that's part of what allowed a lot of the sound effects as well as the dialogue to kind of coexist um, nicely. I know that um, there's, um, you know, between all the vehicles and weapons and screaming, um, you know, to get all that to coexist is, um, you know, the inner workings of the mix sometimes can feel mundane. How do you get all these things to, to, um, to complement each other as best as possible? And that's part of the mix process. You know, we're making all these decisions to try and figure out, A, what communicates the story best, but what keeps the, the right level of energy and enthusiasm where we want it and make it sound cool at the same time as well as is intelligible as possible and Ludwig's material really had a naturally complementary element to it that allowed this coexistence of all these other elements hmm. that's it's something I'm interested to understand is um, you know you've had a long relationship working with Alex Gibson your music editor and is there a certain from what I could tell from listening to some of the interviews of Ludwig is would he would he be delivering you guys stems or long um, pieces initially and then figuring out places where they go or was it the intentional kind of um, figuring out you know set pieces of of, of it like yeah I guess how much I guess how much heavy lifting is Alex having to do to understand kind of how things are the ebb and flow of things is is it locked or is it a lot competition? No, a lot a lot right. he, he and Chris um, build from pieces Ludwig is turning over stems but he's also turning over uh, um, you know, individual tracks that, that mm -hmm. Chris and Alex then layer and kind of build uh, to, to, to Chris's liking. Um, but no, Alex, Alex is, is all over it. He's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Um, so we get out, we, <laughs> I think there's big moment after big moment, but I feel like the bigger of the moments is the 747 scene, which to me is once again, um, it just shows, I guess, how you guys are very articulate with, intentional and articulate with what you're choosing to kind of present to the audience um, sonically. Uh, well, you know, we've got this fairly long sequence with a 747 at full throttle. So we, we really needed to figure out ways to, uh, to change perspective so we weren't in that intense sound field the whole time. And we could hear other things. Um, like when... Um, when he initially, when he turns the jet towards the mm -hmm. hangar or the building, um, Chris wanted it's like a skid or like a sense of, of tires, you know, rubbing on, on asphalt. Uh, there are lots of little details like that. Uh, Gary got some group in there just after the, after the, after the crash itself. There needed to be, um, you know, details other than the jet end. It was really about, uh, First of all, selling jet is at full throttle by the time he, uh, he they, they leave it, they escape. Um, but also, uh, you know, so make it super intense and scary, but also find ways to carve out moments where you're a little bit back from it, where some of the jet's lower, or it's a different sound. When we're under the jet, when we're under the jet, it's kind of a deeper, boomier, uh, mm -hmm. scary sound because it's enormous plane above you rolling pretty fast with nobody in the cockpit so um uh yeah chris just wanted to make this seem like a completely out of control situation which uh they shot it practically they shot it you know with a real plane and a real building and, and real cars and 
and uh, so, you know, as always in Chris's films with sound, we're just trying to keep up to the imagery because it's so, you know, what he what he gets, what he captures is so amazing and so impressive, silent. Mm. So, you know, we've always got our work cut out for us, and we're not we're not we're not fixing things that need to be fixed like right. that happens sometimes. You, you're you're really striving because the, the benchmark is so high. Yeah, uh, Michael, I don't know if you got a chance to see the film in IMAX or not. Uh, I know I, I didn't, unfortunately. I I'm waiting to go back. Yeah, that shot where the plane is coming at you and yes. the nose of the plane comes as close as it does is absolutely stunning in IMAX. And for Chris, the IMAX release really is the premier release. And so I think in his mind, at least I know I, I try to hang on to it. It's like, how is this going to feel when we're, mm -hmm. we're in IMAX? Uh, and I find that when you're in IMAX and you're doing a scene like that, no matter how big and loud you think the, the scene is, when you get to the IMAX theater and you see that proper projected image, yeah. you can't make it too big. You can't make it too uh, overwhelming because that image really is powerful mm. in IMAX. And so I think that um, playing that big of a dynamic and playing the perspectives within that dynamic is partially what makes that scene work. Um yeah, whether they're opening the port on the plane and a different air is coming out of it or whether it's the turning of the jet or whether it's people outside as they're panicking. You know, it's all these different, um, the specificity of some of the perspectives within that enormous dynamic, especially presented in the IMAX theater, really helps make that, the magnitude of that scene what it is. I was ready. Uh, I'm in the Bay Area, but like I looked when I when it was out, it was like you can go to Arizona or San Diego, and I was like, oh boy, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm ready for a road trip quite yet. I, I was thinking about it. I was talking with my friends in LA, but unfortunately, I I, I just had to see the um, the home Blu-ray version, which which was fine. Like I have a nice Meyer sound system here. Like it was loud. It was good. It was it was everything that I was hoping it could be. Um, but yeah, obviously the IMAX experience. It's I love that he's shooting more of his films now in IMAX. It's not just kind of like these handpicked. I felt like this movie was no exception that he really leaned into IMAX a lot more than he typically does. So that was exciting to see. Yeah. yeah so, it, oh, I'm IMAX for 65. 65 oh, too. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's great for the image. It's horrible for the production mixer, you know, yeah. he's trying to not record the sound of that camera, but yes. And get the, the payoff. The dialogue of the yeah. <laughs> um, so, so another component of this uh, film is uh, these turnstiles, which to me, the second the second time around listening to what you guys did with them was really interesting. So I'm curious to understand maybe um, how you guys navigated the sound of the turnstiles because they're a huge story, you know, um, vehicle. So yeah, what was the exploration on that? The idea there was to keep it simple because we didn't want to draw attention to it to, to have people sort of thinking about what's going on inside of it. Like it's, it's, it's maybe just some big electromagnet or something. Yeah. They're like, there's no like complicated set of, you know, uh, of uh, circuits or it's, it's not like a, like a science, a sci-fi kind of a time, time travel device. Um, uh, it's just meant to be uh something probably probably very simple internally but 
but so powerful that it has to be controlled inside this rolled steel, this gigantic heavy rolled steel um, space. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the idea was to keep it simple, to make it sound massive, um, but to to really like get try to get into the um, you know the particulars of what the what's really going on inside of it. Yeah, um, one of the components which. I really enjoyed uh, what you guys did was with the, with the fight. The first time you introduced to the protagonist um, getting attacked by by this guy <laughs> um, was uh, that how you guys what you guys chose to focus on, which to me was like grunts and vocals, and and the impacts were more subdued. So, what was the decision there in terms of how you wanted to, uh, you know, was that was that production audio or, or was that loops? Like, yeah, how do you guys choose? Those uh those scenes, those attack scenes. Well, the the grunts and the efforts were a bit of a combination, but more production than anything else. Okay. Um, we certainly didn't want them to get in the way of of the uh, the intensity of the scene. I think they certainly add to the intensity of the scene. Um, but I think that you know the impacts were very strategically placed. Every grunt and effort was strategically placed, uh, and also taken into consideration was what was happening two reels later when we see it happening in the other direction. Mm -hmm. We tried to be, again, authentic with how both of those scenes play because inevitably somebody's going to play these scenes reverse and check it and cross-reference <laughs> it to the other one. And like that's part of the fan base is going to do that. So we, you know, certainly trying to keep it real. I can't say that we necessarily intentionally were holding efforts or, uh, or impacts or punches back um, you know, we certainly were going with the dynamic of the scene and what felt right in the moment. And that's a lot of what mixing is. And, you know, I worry that it makes interviews like this less exciting to say where we just kind of like, we feel it out. We really have to go with our gut. And that's why we do these weekly playbacks, um, not to evade the, the question, but we, we typically go through an entire pass of the film, focusing on the scenes that we, that Chris wants to focus on between Monday and Thursday. And we screen the movie every Friday morning, top to bottom. Um, and it seems like sometimes we feel like we're rushing through to get to this Friday screening. But what's good is that you can really get, you can keep your eye on the big picture of what's working and what's not working and what is improving. Um, and you can see the spots that need more improvement than other spots. Um, and, and I think that that sequence was certainly one of them that, we knew we wanted to be authentic and we wanted to be effective with, with the magnitude of the punches, the impacts, the guns and the efforts all together. You know, sometimes you're seeing forward shots, sometimes you're seeing backward shots and, and it's to put together to make it seem like it's one linear uh, um, piece. And you want the sound to complement that and convince that. And, you know, we're kind of going with our gut. Yeah. It's a feeling you're, you're, don't try to understand it, feel it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Gary, Gary did work really hard on that that sequence and getting the the order of the of the efforts and also who who are you listening to? You worked really right. hard on that, Gary. And yeah, um, certainly when they're when they're down on that open garage door and he's got the masked man down and he's poking the gun into the wound in the shoulder and, and all that. We and. I really enjoyed collaborating with uh, Jennifer Lame, our picture editor, with that. We scrutinized that endlessly to make sure that that was absolutely right, that 
where's the where each little bit was placed so that it worked in both directions as we were doing it. Um, is the picture the same on the, the first version as the when we returned to it? I feel like was it changing perspective camera wise in terms oh, of Oh yeah, it's different. Yeah. The picture cut is different, yeah. but I think that's what made it that much more complicated. Yeah. Um, was to make sure that the soundtrack actually worked. Not only did it work as you're watching the movie, but it worked when somebody from the fan base plays it backwards, <laughs> that it works relative in comparison to the previous iteration of the scene. Um, same thing with the Red Room, Blue Room. You know, Red Room, Blue Room, you know, I jokingly say is the most complicated scene <laughs> of two guys talking in cinema history. You know, it's just two guys on two different sides of the glass having a conversation that happens twice and it's wild because it's a, you know it's a slightly different conversation in the other direction but knowing that somebody from the fan base is going to play it in the other direction it has to work both ways yeah that's a great point yeah it, it was something that i actually enjoyed the second time watching of in that scene turn the subtitles on and seeing what what was going on because to me those subtleties are really um well thought out and they're placed there for a reason there's nothing there's nothing on screen that is not there for a reason so yeah it's, it's been really yeah it's been really enjoyable to kind of comb through scene by scene and, and obviously getting a better perspective on it well, Jerry uh, had like three perspectives on each side there's the the sound coming out of the actor's mouth there's the uh in the room there's the sound of the other person coming through the glass plus there's mm -hmm. the sound of the other person the other character on the other side of the glass Coming over there's the PA four. speaker. Four, what's the there's fourth four. one? Four. Well, it's the PA two on both sides. Yeah, two. You know, right. The PA on both sides and then the literal on both sides. And it's happening right. on both sides of the glass, red yeah. and blue. So, right. But like what's I coming said, over the PA is staggered from because it's been reversed by his little app on his phone. So it's, it's offset just the correct amount, just the proper amount from the uh, bleed through of, of his live inverted voice coming through the glass. Yeah, it was that, it, when Gary and, and, and Jen were working in those scenes, I just had to leave the room after a while. It was, <laughs> it was, it was just Mickey House, it's going crazy. Right, yeah, Chris would joke, he would say, yeah, after we would finish working on it, do you need a nap now? Oh my God. <laughs> Every time uh, I feel like you could step away from it and come back to it with fresh ears and still just be not overwhelmed it's just there's so many creative choices you can make about how you attack that so i, I love where it landed um to me one of the kind of incredible moments was uh with the these these sailing the sailing scene with the f-50s uh, which yeah. <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure well, let's just start with with them in general uh from what i read from the the sailors that they enlisted from these guys these are fast boats these are not slow and so you know just to shoot it was technically challenging. What did you guys find from uh, the production standpoint and you know what you're presented with of, of, of it? Maybe uh, Gary, start with uh, your dialogue. Well, the, the dialogue was, um, it was tough. The dialogue was a, a, you know, a tough environment for anybody and everybody. You know, tough for the actors, tough for the camera crew, and certainly tough for the sound crew. Uh, you know, we lived with those production recordings for a, a, a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, you could look at yourself and you, sometimes you can convince yourself, I think I understand what he's saying, but then you show it to somebody that hasn't seen it mm. and they're like, I have no idea what anybody's saying. Um, Chris historically has been reluctant to use ADR 
Um, he's got a couple of different philosophies on it. I, I find that often with great actors and you, uh, we have a full cast of great actors in this film. They tend to give you the same thing in ADR that they gave you in production. And, um, and that's great under normal circumstances. You know, when you, the screaming loud environment is hard, you hope that they're projecting. And I think that, uh, John David did a good job when he came in. And, uh, but what you can't do is not make it feel like it's in that scene. So, and I'll say some of the lines are still production that are in that scene. So of course you have to make the ADR sit in and match with the production bits and hopefully get more of the intelligibility through. So, you know, there's a variety of, you know, tricks through EQ and, and, um, as well as, you know, uh, moderate flexings to make it match those radio mics that they were actually wearing um, so that we could use both the production and the ADR. A challenge for sure. Um, the, the fact is that they're also talking about some really complicated yeah, story points, yeah. material. Yeah, they're talking about, you know, this, this material that was stolen and where it was stolen from and, you know, a lot of information, uh, a challenge. Yeah. Certainly a challenge. That might be, I hadn't really thought about it, but that might be one of the most challenging dialogue scenes I've ever had to encounter yeah. in a film where you have to use some of the production. Yeah. You just have to. Yeah. Um, Richard, for you, the sound of uh, these, these ships, these F-50s, what, where did you go to source it or, or how did you guys even approach it? Because the sound of them is very unique. They're yeah. stealth. Yeah. 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 Well, production dialogue aside, uh, they're kick-ass boats. They they go up to fifty knots. Um, they're amazing, and there's only a few of them in the world. We we couldn't. It's not a thing you can go out and rent or even you know talk yeah. your way on board. Um, these are boats that are raced year-round, and when they're not being raced, they're being rebuilt. Um, they're incredibly expensive. So we we um, I actually hired a recordist when they shot it to go down to the set and. Um, in the background, without getting in anybody's way, uh, collect you know what we needed. And I hired Elam Hoffman, uh, who's UK-based sound designer and um, and recordist. Uh, and he kind of ingratiated himself with a crew, mm -hmm. and uh, you know <clears throat> made friends with them, and uh, and got some great stuff. He mic'd the boat. He mic'd one of the one of the picture boats up, and um, um, so there's mics. Our mics, like he had, like uh, twelve or fifteen mics scattered around the boat, uh, all taped in with same color tape as the deck, so you couldn't <laughs> see it. Uh, and that recorder and those mics stayed on the boat all day, and um, just got whatever they were doing. And it it's mostly this high pitch whistle, which is the uh, the cavitation of the uh, foils underneath the rudders because uh, they're going so fast and they, they vibrate and create that pitch, which radiates up into the rig and, you know, up upwards. Um, so there's, yeah, that really loud whistle, which is a sound that Chris loved and we, you know, is odd. So we wanted to use it somehow. Uh, that's a big part of it. Plus um, we added later on a lot of, a lot of water element splashes and, the wake and uh, the the hull hitting a swell, or um, you know the 
one of the one of the foils lifting out of the water. Just to add a lot of detail, we recorded on other boats because on the F-50s, you can't hear anything but that whistle. It's overwhelming. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was really keen to be out there. I wish I could have made it back to be part of that recording process because it was, those are uh, remarkable boats. I saw them race uh, on, in San Francisco Bay at the last America's Cup. And I think there was that was a slightly larger version of the, the same boat. But they're, um, that was a really fun sequence for me, not so much for Gary. Uh, but I had, I had a great time and, uh, and I love boats and love, you know, sailing. So it was a kind of a, kind of a, kind of my dream <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and, and the fact that they did it quite, you know, they, they presented the way the boat sailed very realistically. There's no nonsense of, you know, uh, and they did it practically amazing. Yeah. They did it practically. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was a remarkable sequence, I think, and 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 uh, and I think um, a lot of people don't probably have never seen these kind of boats before, and they look they look super weird, and they're going at these impossible speeds, and they're flying out of the water, and uh, I thought it was brilliant that Chris, you know, happened to put uh, or decided to use these boats because they're they're uh, you know they are so rare and so such a hybrid thing. That's great. Um... You mentioned your the editor Jennifer Lame, which obviously um, you know in the past you've um, totally space. Uh, Lee Smith was has been the previous editor in the past, but you know when we get to this this highway chase scene, to me, uh, cutting action, the pacing of action, um, just the the amount of lifting that picture does when it comes to action scenes, to me is. Is really um, essential to kind of getting the audience in in that driver's seat. In this case, the camera puts you in a perspective which I thought was really unique. It's low to the ground. It's very close. Um, so when you were presented with this this highway chasing, what do you guys like to do and not do, or what were kind of some of the rules just for the first version of it when we were going forward? Um, <clears throat> well, we wanted to cast each vehicle. Correctly, so that uh, the BMW that um, that John David Washington's in uh, and Robert Pattinson is um, just sounds cool and fast. So we used an M M5 that had been supercharged uh, to give it a little more beef. Got some great stunt drivers and cast all the vehicles: the the Audi, the Audi that the Sator is in, and the the Saab that uh, the protagonist drives later. Um, cast them for sound, um, and got awesome stunt drivers and a great location, and um, and just made all of that as exciting as we could. And made a big differentiation between, the, you know, your perspective, whether you're in the car at, the, at street level. Uh, recorded a lot of Eric Potter. Recorded a lot of uh, uh, like highway details, like going over the little bumps in the road and um, you know changing lanes, um, swerving off the road. Just getting little details that would uh, that would sell those lower perspectives. Uh, tire going over a manhole cover. Um, 
and then um, you know we did a whole skid pack uh, while we were doing our recording sessions with one of the cars. Um, did tons of skids, um, and um, then we're able to manipulate those as needed. Uh, but yeah, it was, it's it's a lot of it. It's about finding the right vehicle to record and finding the right driver to drive it. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, we looked out on both counts there. Yeah, for for you, Gary, um, do you find that these action scenes, like once again, you only have production, or you're you know that you're only going to be able to use production? Uh, I feel like you know the dialogue moments in these chase scenes, like even with say Tor in the, in in the car across the way, like he's non-verbally kind of communicating stuff. But there's communic- it's it's very interesting to to see how you guys manage what you say or don't say, and like, but how much production do you end up using, and how much do you find that you have to go back and? You know, it's all that that whole scene is production i'm trying to think back i don't believe there's any adr in wow. that sequence everything is um everything is a is a production recording uh not all of them are synchronous production recordings <laughs> but they're all from the production the first thing i think that i have my ear on and certainly kevin and i are talking about all the time on this one is um but i i don't know i think that he and i both kind of know um what the Audi is going to be and what the BMW is going to be. It really, the wild card is going to be the music. What has Ludwig done? What is, what's been brought here? What's, or what's changed from the last version? So we try to, we try to put our ear on that first to kind of analyze, um, you know, what, what that component is actually bringing into the equation. Um, and uh, it's the first time that any of us really have kind of heard that, at least at the first pass of it, that we get the music. Um, so we kind of analyze that and figure out that dynamic. And and um, we certainly know how much work has been put into those sound effects that Richard is bringing to the table. And we try to um, make the make the calls of when to when to bob and when to weave, you know, and we're always trying to hang on to those details. Richard was talking about the details earlier of the, you know, the the, the bumps on the road or going off to the shoulder or any kind of detail that kind of helps peek out to to keep it alive and keep it interesting as well as clearing the way for whenever we've got some narrative coming through the dialogue. I, you know, what I want to make sure that we're communicating, it's like, it's not that any one of us, Richard or Kevin or myself are thinking about just one department. You know, we don't have tunnel vision like that. It really is a full on crew where I know Richard is responding when he hears the music. Ah, let's, you know, and he'll make a contribution to the mix and we integrate that, that contribution into it. Or if I'm hearing something that is happening, whether it's even in the, the, the backgrounds or whether it's in the Foley or something that may be hindering something that's happening in the dialogue, like it's all, you know, back to part of the collective sound crew. Um, you know, we, we certainly don't have a whole library of ADR that we're working with. And I think all of us know that too. And we kind of know that the challenges of the production track are going to be there. Um, and I think Chris kind of operates with the philosophy of he'd rather accept the production that may not be the, the cleanest, perfect recording, but it is an authentic recording of what that actor did in that moment. Even if it's just a reaction, you know, the, sometimes those are the most valuable moments that you can't recreate on the ADR stage. And, you know, and that's part of what makes the movie as visceral and real as it is, are decisions mm-hmm. like that. 
Yeah, um, I'm curious. Now, now we've gotten to the point of the of the red room, blue room. Um, it, on on the page, on the script, does Chris already have an idea of how he wants to represent that, or is it is it an opportunity for discovery for you guys to kind of throw out some ideas? Like, what? How much did he? How much did he have in mind versus what you guys ended up going with? When I first saw it at the first temp. Um, well, my gut instinct was, I didn't know what the heck was going on. Like, what is this scene? Uh-huh. Again, I hadn't seen it before the first temp. But he took a minute. We stopped mixing. And he explained what his uh, intention was and what he really wanted to hear, what he expected to hear in terms of the design of it and and the decisions within you know, this PA. He didn't give uh, the specifics about what he wanted the PA to sound like. He said, this is the PA playing on this side of the glass. Then there's also the PA playing on the other side of the glass. Like he gave me the margin to make that sound like I would want it to sound. And there was some significant experimentation that went into that during that first temp. And I did feel kind of hurried because there was a pandemic (laughs) pandemic coming at the same time. So um, at the same time, it was like you had to build that structure in early to communicate what the heck was happening in that scene. Um, but he did give me at that first temp the you know the margin to do it and to experiment and to dial it in and then to present it, which was great. I don't always get that opportunity, mm-hmm. um, but it happened on the dub stage. You know, we did it there, and it did mature as we got into temp two. Uh, actually, no, Temp 2 and Temp 3 happened remotely, but during the final mix, it did continue to mature. And of course, the internal editorial of it, um, Jen and I scrutinized to the nth degree to make yeah. sure of its authenticity and its, uh, you know, that it would play in either direction. Inevitably, somebody was going to do it. I haven't seen anybody do it on YouTube yet, comparing that forwards okay. and backwards. I'm kind of surprised I haven't seen it. but. Um, they will now, Gary. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. just open the door. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, Richard, for you, um, I, I feel like when the audience experiences the first time that the pr- protagonist goes to the turnstile and is now going back into the past, um, you know, with the mask on and the reverse seagulls and the world and and everything we know is, is backwards. Uh, what was the discovery for you? What, what, I mean, like the, I don't know many films that allow so much creative play in this way that it's just like, we've set up the rules, but yet we don't really know what the audit, what, what is right or wrong. Like everything is upside down. So yeah. What were you excited about when you were presented obviously with this first real scene of now we're in a different world? Um, well, it just, it had, everything had to feel different to him uh, in some way. Uh, we worked a lot on wind, for instance, to, mm-hmm. to make it feel more like a sucking sound than a you know buffeting, hitting sound. Um, kind of limited the the actual reversal of sounds to a minimum. I think the the tugboat horn and the uh, parts of the seagulls, although even the seagulls weren't necessarily reversed, they were just mm-hmm. manipulated in such a way that they sounded sounded like a an echo of the real sound in a way. Um, uh, so it was really a discovery of how can we, how can we sell this idea without simply reversing a whole bunch of sounds and making everything sound backwards to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so like the car skids and the Doppler horns from the other cars, 
you know, all of that was just, it, that was really, uh, we just, as Gary said earlier, we just felt our way into it. And, and uh, it was just about, you know, working and working and working and um, push and tinker and, you know, and rethink and until we, um, until we kind of feel like, yeah, that's fresh and interesting. That sells the idea. Uh, it's sort of like catching lightning in a bottle. Once you've got it, you, you, you treasure it. You don't, you know, you don't mess with it anymore. And there were those few moments and then there were moments, lots of moments that we um, just always felt could be better and better and better and always kept refining and tinkering with. And, um, but that, that sequence from the moment he walks out of the warehouse needed to feel like some sort of new beginning, like some sort of, you know, we're all, we're in a different movie almost. We're we're in a different perspective on the world, and um, uh, so it was exciting to work on it. And uh, um, well, so even the, uh, the his foot into in, in, the water to me was intentional in terms of what you're presenting, what what you're you know what you're hearing. It was it's very subtle, but listening to it, you're like, oh, okay, this is not what I not not what you expect, you know, with pictures picture and sound. Yeah, and he, and he, you know, he, again, he shot all of that practically. They figured out how to run the film through the camera in reverse, and uh, <laughs> so it's not a visual, it's not a you know an op visual effect or anything. It's 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 all on set. Um, so the actors had to, you know, move backwards and and uh, convincingly, uh, and uh, we ended up doing all the foley forward. Um, just occasionally doing some little tweak or, you know, add a, add a sweetener to, to, to explain a movement that wouldn't make sense, uh, that wouldn't, wouldn't make sense in, in reverse. Right. Um, um, but yeah, all of that inverted stuff, we, 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 we did, I mean, I learned a lot about physics as it relates to time. I really kind of looked into it because I was, curious what i i was kind of unsure of the of the actual definition of entropy for one thing so i did i went kind of went down that rabbit hole of of what all that means and and the arrow of time and the fact that there's really not much difference but i mean there's not any any particular explanation for for time except uh except our experience of it so things could run in reverse or forward and it wouldn't really make any make any difference it could work either way Mm -hmm. um in reality uh so you know started out with sort of a sort of an accurate uh uh um concept of how this world might sound but then you know then then just went for what felt right and what yeah. uh, and what felt right and what sort of and what sort of fit within this general this kind of loose intellectual framework that we had concocted to you know <laughs> to think of the way as a way of thinking of all this yeah it was pretty clear pretty quick that just reversing some of these literal elements wasn't gonna cut it it wasn't nearly as um i don't know unique and it, it didn't evoke a sense of pure mystery uh, that we needed i think in that first exterior when you're in that world you wanted it to be um familiar but incredibly odd at the same time uh, those birds i really remember working on the birds and to get the vocalizations of those gulls to be 
not backwards, but feel familiar, but completely uh, uh, different to the goal that you had ever heard before, but to understand, you know, the, the, the reverse time element. I think it was actually the combination also of what Ludwig was contributing, where it wasn't an actual backwards element of music that he was doing. It was just this, it was this, this low mid throb that just kind of felt like it was it was breathing backwards. Like there, the, the music really has a magical set of lungs to it as an, as a standalone element that I really think helped supported that as an ambient, as a, as a supporting element of the backgrounds that I think when you did come up with, when, uh, uh, when we experimented to come up with just the right elements of those, the backwards wind or the, the, the quote unquote backwards wind that, that uh, more, Richard said it, that sucking sound more than a, more than a standard wind or that just to get those right magical combinations to make it feel super strange, but still kind of familiar. I don't know. It was definitely <laughs> one of the most unique film mixes to participate in. Really? Yeah. The scene of going back now to the 747, we have, as an audience member, you have more knowledge. You think you understand once again, uh, some, some of, you know, the story points, but yet we're always surprised for you guys when you got to that moment in the film. Once again, I think we talked about the fight scene, but what was different this time in the reverse world? Because like, once again, it's like the sirens are going on the jet engine with the explosion is being reintroduced again. How did you reapproach the scene now coming back to it? Well, obviously the sequence of events is in, is in reverse order. But everything is different. Everything is, we're, we're sort of at a different point in the scene. We don't quite see that exact section of the scene in the first, in the forward iteration of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that scene ends with, you know, the jet crashes, you know, and then the kind of the immediate aftermath. Um, so we're seeing a, a slightly later uh, part of, the, of, of that sequence in the second iteration. Um, so yeah, emergency personnel have arrived. Everything, everything in that case, a lot of that stuff was was literally backwards. The, the radio and playing in the uh, in the uh, fire truck uh, voices. Um, uh, there's shit flying off the plane as it's yeah. as it's disintegrating, and they're dodging it. Um, and um, and then there's this incredible score. This really exciting score that opens up when they open the container doors and and go out um so yeah it was it was that was a real weave to make it to make to give the music its important moment and do its thing uh but also to create a sense of uh of 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 um of scale and space and there's whoa there's a lot going on here and it's you know it's just the, the aftermath of a really of a really big terrifying incident you know, that's also one of those scenes where, um, you know, on all the Chris Nolan films, you know, we're mixing in 5-1. We're not mixing in Atmos. We're not even mixing in 7-1. But that particular scene is one of the most sonically immersive scenes that we have in the movie. It's one of those, you know, they bust out of that container and they're they're wheeling, you know, the gurney on the tarmac and they're going through the, you know, the firefighters are running by the trucks are pulling in, there's fire everywhere. And it really is, 
uniquely one of the more immersive scenes that's in the film as you're kind of getting back into the airport building itself. And so I, I know we're leaning into more of the immersive elements of surround sound in that Chris is um, historically a big fan of using the screen channels more than anything else. And that includes the point one of the sub as most everybody knows he's a big fan of that that big sound coming right off the screen that's where the movie plays that's really where the the fundamentals of the mix are going to play but that's what i like about the second iteration of the airport scene is that it kind of has a different character to the mix as we get off the tarmac and we get back in and then when you recognize the fact once you get inside and you see the masked man fight happening in the opposite direction it's a whole different flavor that you haven't tasted in this movie before. So like two different flavors happening really in two um, adjacent scenes that uh, I think brings a, a whole new uh, step up in the, in the storytelling process. The, the extension too of the story with showing Neil seeing this new version of the protagonist uh, from the past that's all right. Um, the future. The, <laughs> I'm going I'm to give up on trying to it's say it a, right. <laughs> it's the current. It only current, happens yeah. once, really. You just experience it twice. <laughs> it only happens once. Oh, uh, we, made, we made charts, and Gary made a brilliant, like, uh, like uh, oh, man. Rosetta Stone and you know uh, uh, Andrew in, in our department made, made one, too, just so we could, in our heads, it's actually very hard to think in reverse. Yeah, I, I I found it very difficult. I found it very difficult to to, to make that make that leap. Does Chris have a, a map? Yeah. Does he have a roadmap he ever shows you? Is like this is when I was yeah. writing this film. No, he doesn't give that to you. Oh my god. I mean, okay. it's a, I'm pretty sure he's got one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's got one, but it's not something that's uh, distributed amongst the uh, people. No. no, 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 no. I I, I, I love that. He'll answer questions. I mean, he, it's all it's all up here, so he'll answer. You know, he'll. Yeah. Say, what, what, why does that happen there, not there? And he'll, you know. So, and he'll tell so you. He, yeah, he'll tell <laughs> you. he will tell you. He will tell you. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's not about, you know, keeping information from us. He's right. just not going to show you the blueprints to the building that he's built, you know? <laughs> he, wants to see if you can <laughs> he wants to see if you can climb it. That's what yeah. he wants to know. He's not going to show you where all the footholds are, though, to climb it. Yeah. Um, I will say that, like most movies, when we get to the printmaster, most movies, like, we're kind of done watching this movie. We've seen it so many times. and But this movie uniquely was a movie we kept the crew, even as we're print mastering and delivering all the international deliverables, like we're still talking about it. We're still trying to figure out, but if this character is here, there, how is this happening at the same time? How does he get from point A to point B? Hence all the charts and that we were all drawing as we're working on it. You know, I'm still texting people. I've got friends that have seen it multiple times actually went to the theater bought out theaters multiple times oh, amazing. and every time they walk out of the theater there they start texting me like now wait a minute how did the there's there's nothing quite like after a christopher nolan film of just trying to process like close your eyes and process what you just experienced and that that's me why like watching it the second time and i went online i read as much as i could to try to understand there's a sator square there's palindrome there's like all this all these other elements that are part of this world and they're they all have their their fingerprint uh at some point you know and and there's a reason why it's there i was just you know to me for someone who's working on the film for you guys i'd imagine like you want to have some certainty that your understanding of the film or his intent is in fact what was intended so that's 
that's funny to hear that he kind of keeps you somewhere in between. I mean, yeah, you well, know, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's not about keeping it secret. It's just yeah. it, it's just I think uh, um, you know it, it, the story is inherently complex. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's I, I I don't know that I don't know that if he sat down and explained the whole film to us, it would that it would make any more sense, frankly. Yeah. It's, it's just that difficulty of thinking backwards thing that is, right. you know, we're just not built for that. I mean, not you guys have had a few films to grapple with time and space, but yet, yeah, fundamentally as humans, it's... it's, it's yeah. Not, yeah, not like this, Not like this. Yeah, not like, not this. like this. <laughs> so when you were presented with the this final combat scene, this final moment with the 10-minute countdown, the 10-minute count up, what to you was still going to be challenging because I love that we're intersecting forward and backwards at the same time. Visually you have two different worlds. So how did you delineate what was the thing that you presented to the audience sonically when you have forward and backwards at the same time? Well, they're intercut. The two perspectives are intercut with each other. There's backwards people running in the forward scene and there's forward people running in the backwards scene. Yeah. So, um, we, you know, we just, we, we tried to make it as clear as possible. And we, we did some, uh, 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 we, uh, Joseph Fraley who worked with me, uh, made some really cool reverse kind of Rickos that didn't sound reversed. They just sounded odd and, uh, wonky and weird. And so, uh, we, we try to hit cuts with sounds that were clearly more reversed and, and Ludwig did a great, really cool thing with the music and, mm -hmm. uh, kind of did a, uh, it's almost like um, uh, it, um, it almost feels like time stands still on the on the inverted scenes. There's a definite musical shift at those cuts because um, you know important to Chris to make make it clear who we were with, which team we were with. Yeah, so that was the biggest challenge of that scene. I mean, in, in addition to just the vastness of it and the number of number of uh, number of people involved in the in the uh, amount of gunfire and um, you know, it needed to sound like there were probably more people there fighting than what we actually see. There are more helicopters probably than we actually see. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and we did a lot of production recording out while they were shooting. I sent uh, John Fasol and Eric Potter out to the desert where they shot that scene um, to get the Chinooks, uh, which they hired for Chinooks to to uh, be involved, uh, to, to, to fly in the Russian helicopter and, and people running. And uh, they got as much wild sound as they could in and around the shoot. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the single biggest challenge of that, of that scene is differentiating between those two. Make it, making the inverted sequences sound really interesting and inverted. And like we've talked about before, not just reversing stuff, but making it right. sound, um, you know, and then they did all kinds of, they did some really cool, Visual tricks. Chris does very few visual effects, but he did like uh, when the inverted team is uh, running, uh, uh, the, the foot falls in the sand, the sand kind of flies back into their feet. Um, mm -hmm. So we just tried to affect things like that that would point out uh, whether we were the, with the red team or blue team. Yeah. And so, Gary, for you, production track wise, what were you presented with? Well, um, like in. Almost any other scene, you got to figure out what the most important element is. So, whether it's a forwards piece of production, or whether it actually is a reverse piece of production, or whether it's a loop group that is clearly performed naturally, 
versus an inverted piece of loop group, whatever it is, you know, you kind of got to figure out what is the important element to communicate either where we're going, what's happening, what direction we're moving in at any given time. I mean, that's part of what the mixed job actually is, you know, support, support the narrative and support this story and get it as clear as you can by choice of focus of sonic element. Uh, and so it was a combination of everything other than ADR. Um, I don't, again, I don't think there's any ADR in that scene, you know, now, uh, so every time they're in a mask, that is a synchronous mask recording. You know, Chris loves his masks and he loves the real performance for better or for worse. That's what it is. And, you know, collaborated really uh, even remotely with Dave Bach. You know, we had lots of options and lots of different production alts for every line and almost every time, we mm -hmm. went with the sync one because that's what he really did in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the masks and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I've never put reversed loop group into a movie before. Yeah. So, and proper for everything. Day Bach could do some awesome uh, group recording before COVID. We got all the group and the Foley yeah. one before COVID. Uh, coincidentally, happily. Uh, and he recorded it all outside and it just, it just had, a, it just sat right in there. Right. Gary just, like, yeah. Perfect yeah, Dave, vibe, perfect deal. You didn't hear yeah, what anybody was saying really, but it was just activity and perfect, uh, you know, perfect, like acoustic to it. Yeah. He records in, um, like a, a six track format where he's got obviously close mics, but then he's got a variety of different distant mics for loop group. And that's the beautiful thing about being on the Warner's lot is that there's lots of different exteriors and hopefully you can book some time where there isn't a production crew working. And he got some great, great exterior, you know, naturally worldized uh, loop group tracks, which is, which was a total treat. You know, we often have to spend mixed time to make loop group sound naturally exterior. And we just didn't really have to do that. A lot of it just worked. It was just finding the right combination of the mics that he had recorded that were cut into a given sequence. Uh, Eric Sato recorded all that stuff on yeah. a lot. With That's great. Yeah. I think it's something, Richard, that you've time and time again gone back to when it comes to like the Foley of Interstellar, of you know doing it in the, the hull of, of, a, of a ship or you know going into a soundstage. I, th I think you've obviously understood what the benefit is of worldizing this material. Um, so it's great to hear that it's still an effective approach. I think, I think it's a good reminder for folks of what the benefits are of doing it in real world situations versus in post and just trying to make it match what picture is showing. So, Oh yeah. You, you get so many great uh, accidents of acoustics that you wouldn't get if you thought it through and tried to do it logically. We did a lot of worldizing of, um, cause you, you know, we were, we were experimenting with explosions, inverted explosions and, um, and sounds like that, and so we we ended up worldizing a lot of that stuff. A lot of the fight sounds in the in the in the protagonists fighting, you know, that, that sequence around the jet that we were talking about. Um, we worldized a lot of those hits and punches, and some of the foley even. Um, I mean, literally worldizing a recording, playing it back over a PA speaker, and re-recording it in different spaces, just to get a you know, we'd find a space or a hallway with an interesting acoustic or a bounce. And, um, and uh, I, I just think those little, those little nuggets of reality uh, that are really hard to uh, create 
from scratch with a plugin uh, are are uh, a, a, a guide to the audience that oh I'm I'm really there with these guys I'm not they're not trying to trick me with some you know phony sound effects and some you know re reverse punches they're trying to uh, it, it really feels like I'm I'm there the movement feels real it feels recognizable and um, it's super important to Chris to to be you know to put the audience in the world of the characters and not uh, really make them feel like they're there. And that's the that's the point of all these millions of little details that we keep putting in to every scene. Every scene in this movie was as difficult for me as any other. There weren't any easy ones. Uh, the, each one of them was challenging to to really bring alive. And um, you know that's the reason Chris really loves the sounds of the world and and recognize that that's a way to to uh, uh, to put uh, put the audience you know in that world with the characters that's great I, I feel like um, every time uh, one of Chris's films comes out there's uh, well there's no one who's quite making um, a film that fills a frame like he does visually just I mean, visually, it's incredible. The the scale and size of everything is something that, you know, very few directors are able to do. And I think the task that you guys are presented with to me is just like, there's a reason why you guys have had such success and from being recognized with, you know, Oscar awards and nominations. And, you know, to me, it stands out because he fundamentally understands sound, understands that it's just another, you know, tool that he leans into. Um, what, you know, when this film was presented, we had the pandemic and we were we were knowing that at some point this film is going to come out and it's going to be theatrically shown um did you guys have to re revisit your home the streaming or some of these other versions because there's such an emphasis on um the fact that not many people are going to actually be able to experience it in theaters no actually the short answer to that is no uh what's on the blu-ray is mm -hmm. the theatrical master that's the, it's just how we've done it now since Dunkirk might have been the first one that we did that way. Um, but um, Chris really wants um, people to experience it as close to the, the experience that they would get when they go to the cinema as possible. And part of that is getting the image right on either Blu-ray or 4K or, you know, he, he maximizes is every format to make it look and sound as close to the cinema experience as possible and so we only do a level compensation for um, home surrounds uh, but other than that what's on the blu-ray disc and what's on the 4k disc as well as all the formats like we don't do multiple masters um, what's out there is what's out there. Some people like to do near field masters. Some directors really like that. They want to, they want to change it. Chris doesn't really want to change it. He wants it to be what he made for the cinema. Yeah. Uh, Richard, for you, what, what do you find in terms of um, iterations of, or different, different, you know, different movies with Chris? What's, what's kind of consistent across all the films? What are things that he returns to? Fundamentally, when you you know you talk about the sub channel or the use of surrounds, what's kind of a signature thing that he does that's unique to him when it comes to the soundtrack? Uh, well, he he wants uh, he recognizes what it what sound can contribute, and so mm -hmm. as a as a sound designer, as a sound editor, it's a it's a feast working on his films. It's a 
uh, it's just the best. It's, you know, it's, it's such an awesome opportunity because you you he really wants to hear things and really wants to hear sounds and really wants to hear unusual sounds and um, so it's uh, and he wants them to be powerful and visceral and uh, so sounds need to be big and bold and uh, solid and um, you know there are times for subtlety as well but it, you know the big scenes need to be huge the scale needs to be huge visually the scale is huge um, sound needs to live up to that and uh, I would say um, I would say uh, uh, with him uh, he wants to avoid the expected and um, really try to reinvent, try to find a new angle sonically for each sequence. And, yeah. uh, you know, not, not just kind of, oh, we're in a restaurant now, so it's got to sound like a restaurant. Yeah. Just find, you know, find some, some different take uh, on, on the simplest things. And so, again, for a sound person, it's fantastic because you, you know, it really, it really makes you uh, exercise your mind in a way that, that, you know, you, you often aren't pressed to do. And uh, um, uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's always have a fantastic time working with yeah. this. Is, were, were either of you involved with the 2018 unrestored version of 2001 when he went and did that project for the Confident Festival? Yeah, I was. Okay. Because something that was interesting going back and, and recognizing kind of some of the steps that have kind of, I think, or some of the things that he's said and shown, which is, you know, when, I think when he went back and did this unrestored version, he said it was bold and experimental, which is one way of saying it was different for the time and really stood out to him even now that it, it you know, it was this um, very unexpected soundtrack. But uh, what was your take of, you know, when he went back and worked on 2001 and how that relates to his approach to understand of being experimental? Because I think experimental is not a word that people use often when it comes to the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought that was a wildly um, uh, educational experience for me. I had never seen 2001 on a big screen. I mean, I had only seen it on TV. Um, but they found an original um, – well, they found the original six-track mags for the 70-millimeter masters that Kubrick had done – and um, the idea in you know the unrestored version of it, or the it, presenting the film as it was originally presented in 1960, was it 1968, 1969 that that yeah. film came yeah. out? Uh, I mean, that was the the whole goal, and sound, of course, had to fall in line with that. But of course, when you hang a piece of mag from 1968, <laughs> um, it doesn't sound the same as when it played off of the mag player in 1968 because the the physical medium has aged and and this one did not age particularly well so we wanted to simply restore it back to its original form um and so we did that there was a a, a little bit of noise reduction done and a little bit of eq done to in the efforts in the strict effort of getting it back to its original form in 68 but then we indeed played it back and took notes on it to make sure that it was really how Stanley wanted it, comparing it to notes that had been found from back in the day. And what I remember thinking after that playback with Chris on the dub stage of that 
mastered version, the cleaned up mastered version of 2001 is how similar it struck me mm-hmm. the sensibilities and the choices were of that original mix compared to Chris's mix choices. Mm. You know, I, I hadn't seen that many Kubrick films in a movie theater over, you know, the stretch of time, but when that radio frequency kicks in, in 2001, that the monolith is projecting, it's that high frequency, that high pitch and high frequency, how, how it increases over its duration what that duration actually is before it cuts out and goes quiet. Like it struck me that uh, that's a choice that Chris would have made in one of his contemporary films. I was kind of astonished by it because it, in, in its proper um, reproduction of that mix, it is wildly loud. That is a very big and a very bold mix played back correctly. Um, and it's very Nolan-esque, or dare I say, Nolan is very Kubrick-esque in sure. that. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, in 1968, to be able to to have the gumption to play an element that big, that shocking for that long of a time, like a very bold, bold choice, and great to look back on historically. And I can see some of the parallels in that, in the choices that Chris is making even now. And some of the choices now are even considered provocative. That movie is too loud. That movie is too, you know, the weight of it is almost too much. It's almost overwhelming. It may not be the first time that it's been done. And it's been done by some masters. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting to kind of be uh, announced, uh, well, just a bystander and, and see how the public reacts, how the community relax, reacts. Um, it's it's also interesting to then just get it from the horse's mouth when Chris comes out. One of the things that really was striking was when he was talking about Interstellar, he said it was a very, very radical mix. I was a little shocked to realize how conservative people are when it comes to sound because you can make a film that looks like anything you can shoot it on an iphone no one's going to complain but if the mix if you mix the sound a certain way or if you use certain sub frequencies people get up in arms so i i think you know a lot of times he's you you, uh, i I would think that people would want to um you know uh not ask for permission but they're fundamentally there's a norm that is expected and if you break that norm you're you're breaking the rules and you should you know you're a bad filmmaker and that to me is like fundamentally the wrong way of looking at this so I'm yeah curious. i mean look at theater painting uh music uh you know i don't think people look at look at the film sound in the same way and and uh, it, it, it's it is incredible how conservative people are as regards to that although mm-hmm. that slack to you know um to uh to any other any other art form, any other medium, but um, somehow film is um, is I guess sort of like comfort food or something. It's a familiar <laughs> thing, and people want it to be a certain way. And when it's not that certain way, it's all it throws them. You know, I go into a theater and sit down, and um, I just I want I I'm thinking floor me, take me somewhere I've never been before, and uh, and you know that's what Chris does, and so it's. Um, Again, that's why it's so exciting and fun and challenging and uh, to, to work with them because it's, uh, you know, you're pushing boundaries. Yeah. So, so. Yeah, that, that's the kind of filmmaker I would want to work for, somebody that's 
willing to try things and put things out that haven't been done or aren't widely done, you know, do something really different. Um, you know, all this kind of echoes of, uh, you know, Stravinsky, the Rite of Spring, you know, when that first performed, like people rioted, this is impossible. <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. You know, it's like, yeah, guess what? It's 2021 and we still kind of talk about it, you know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the thing that's kind of interesting is, um, you know, people, when they talk about, you know, you, if you go into the rabbit hole of reading the internet comments and whatnot, people will say, oh, well, it's playing back 85, which is the standard, you know, that's, that's what we want on, you know, on the Dolby scale at seven, that's 85. But why, you know, you know, people still will come out and say, you know, it, well, we need to turn it down. This is not okay. And yet people are making decisions. It's like, the filmmaker has made an, an intentional choice to do something. And someone at the final moment before the audience gets to experience it, they're saying, no, we actually think it should be another way, which I think is just, you know, when, when we talk about the, um, I, I think a lot of the feedback we've seen from Spielberg and Nolan and, and a lot of these other filmmakers when they're trying to protect the intention of the director, it's really interesting to see that it's really hard to control all these variables that are fundamentally out there when it comes to theatrical playback, which is how we want to watch these films. Well, take take any kind of controls off the off the cinema processor. Why why is yeah. there a volume control on a cinema processor? <laughs> yeah, you know? the, the the they're remixing the film yeah. in the cinema on the fly, and then it probably stays there forever until somebody right. you know decides to turn it up or not. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah there's a, there's a theory that says you know when the little old lady complains, you know, you give her her money back. Mm. Don't yeah. turn the movie down for her. That changes for everyone else. Everybody, because mm -hmm. that's not what the filmmaker made. The filmmaker made something so that it affects the audience, so that they feel something in a very particular, calculated way. You know, they spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money to make it be what it is. And all it yeah. takes really is one person to say it's too loud, and then. It comes down and the whole thing changes once you just give that person their money back and leave it for the rest of the world to appreciate yeah. for what and, it really is. Sound people ought to holler more about this because, you know, yeah. imagine if they had a control on the on to, to dim the projector bulb or, or, or brighten the projector bulb. They'd be changing the DP's work yeah. and, and color temperature and everything. Yeah. Um, this is the same thing. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. There's there's nothing better when I see a, an image posted online when someone's taking a photo of, a, um, you know, a sign that's been put up at a theater and it says, this is how it's intended. Like, you know, please, like, what I forget what the verbiage is, but it's just, it's silly that someone, that as an audience member, you have to be pre-warned that what you're about to experience is what the, the director intended, which, I mean, that is exciting to me. There's someone out there who is looking at it fundamentally differently and wants to present that. And Christopher Nolan is not a small director. He makes he makes films that a lot of people see, and his films are commercially commercially very successful. So I feel it's just an interesting time and place for you guys and the industry as a whole. And I completely you know agree with what you're saying. It's too bad that sound is the one that's being scrutinized as the thing that we should we still as an audience member can control and change and, that, and all this being said we don't try to make it too loud we we yep. are very careful about you know uh um if it hurts our ears we turn it down um right if we can't understand a line of dialogue we we gary makes it work yep. uh so it's 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 not like we're I, th I think there's a lot of misinterpretation of chris's intentions and yep. um 
uh, and and kind of jumping to the wrong conclusions. Uh, you know, it's it, <laughs> it's a lot of responsibility that you guys have to like. You're, you have to defend your work when, in fact, you're representing what Chris is wanting to do. So, yeah, it's, it's a hard place to be. I, th- I think it's a small percentage of people that, that, that are saying this. I, I, right. most, the, most of the comments I get are very positive. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I, I, think it's a, I think it's a small vocal minority who, who mm-hmm. have a valid opinion. It's their opinion. But, you know, yeah. it's, I, don't think they're, I, don't think they're, I don't think they're approaching the film and um, and giving it uh, you know giving it a, a chance on its own merits, and I think a lot of people are jumping on without even having seen the film. Uh, that definitely yeah. occurred at the beginning when this was first released. I know people hadn't seen the film, and yet they were already complaining about oh, it. Oh Lord, yeah, it's it's. I, I went into this with no under uh, no previous ex- uh, knowledge of it, no trailer, no nothing, and you know I watched it these two times, and I was you know I was just enamored by what was accomplished. I can understand. If someone saw it in a theater and maybe a theater, it's always, it's always, it's always a discussion. Maybe the theater speaker is not calibrated. Maybe the, it's an old system. Maybe it's turned down. Like we don't know, but yet it's not, it's unfair to come out and just say, this is wrong. It needs to be fixed. How dare you? Cause it's fundamentally just, it's, it's not how, it's not how it should work when it comes to, you know, a filmmaker's decisions and choices. Cause I think he knows what he's doing by this point. I don't think we need to question whether he's conscious or not. Yeah. Anyway, case in point. <laughs> um, gosh, before we wrap up here, anything else, you guys? Anyone from your uh, crew that you want to um, acknowledge? There's a handful of folks that worked on this, so and obviously Kevin O'Connell is one of them. So yeah, who else? Well, it was awesome to work with Jennifer Lane. Um, first time working with with her. Uh, uh, she was a great presence on the stage. There were a limited number of people allowed on the dub stage because of COVID restrictions. So. Uh, you know, we were we were like um, quarantining together, really, for those two <laughs> months or so. We were mixing. Um, my crew was awesome. They rolled with the punches, and you know, all went home and stayed. We were all working remotely through the mix. Uh, just Andrew Bach um, was working with me at at, at Warner Brothers, um, but awesome effects crew, awesome dialogue crew, Foley crew. Uh, you know, everybody was great. Working with Kevin was awesome. I've worked with Kevin before, and it's always a lot of fun. He's he's brings a great energy and you know great ideas, and always striving, like all of us. Uh, so it, as Gary has said, it was a very coherent, tight, fun bunch of people, and um, you know we were all uh, I think we were all happy to have something to distract us from the <laughs> pandemic pandemic life for a couple of months. That's that's true. It was really the the best distraction possible. You know, we kept working through it. You know, God bless um, Chris and Emma for you know encouraging us to go through. At the same time, they were very considerate for everything that was going on in the world, and offered all kinds of accommodations and and considerations for those that either didn't want to participate or wanted to participate in limited ways and or what have you. We all um, were made to feel really comfortable to make those choices for ourselves. So I really want to show some props to Emma as well as Chris, as well as our post-supervisor, Tina Anderson for that. And um, I have to show super appreciation for our Mixtech Unsung Song, (laughs) who is uh, wildly smart, quick, individual, supportive, 
uh, and a and a key crew member as well. Um, I yeah, sure I, I gotta, I gotta concur anybody. with that. Gotta concur with that. All of that. Chris and Emma were great about uh, you know. I want everybody. We want they wanted everyone to feel comfortable there, and if anyone didn't, we figured out a way for them to work remotely. And uh, yeah, Unsun is forgot to mention Unsun. She's uh, she's um, she was there, and she had to be in a separate room, but it was a room that opened out onto the oh dub stage, so she could you know we could I could just look at her and communicate, or <laughs> Chris could, or, or anybody on the stage, and. Um, and she's just she's focused. She's right there. She spots problems as they occur, and you know uh, is already on it uh, before somebody mentions it. Um, yeah, and and the in the engineering staff, at Warner Brothers, who 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 came in, and um, you know, Tony Pilkington and um, uh, Kevin Collier, Brian Murphy, yeah, um, and Kevin. Uh, Kevin Collier, yeah, they were uh, they were they they kept the 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 wheels on the on the bus, and um, uh, I, it 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 felt like a regular mix. It didn't feel like we were in any kind of weird, unusual circumstance, except that there was nobody else in the lot. Um, but as far as our working daily working routine, it was uh, all everyone involved just kept it, you know, kept full speed ahead. Awesome. I'd like to reiterate the the privilege that it was to sit next to Kevin O'Connell for all those weeks. Um, you know where I come from. You know he's a legend in our business, and you know we worked for years with uh, Greg Landecker, and um, God bless him, he's happily retired. And um, you know Kevin was a you know student of Greg as you know many years ago when he was coming up through the ranks, and so a real privilege to kind of have him and you know and collaborate really because there's a, a lot of insight to be uh you know to embrace and a lot of education in that and a lot of wisdom and so i really appreciated this whole you know this whole opportunity for this film yeah That's kevin all. kevin brings a wealth of uh of knowledge and, and experience and <clears throat> i think chris appreciated that and we all appreciated that having having kevin on board you guys have a lot of smart people in one room and it, it doesn't hurt that uh the story is so engaging it me i i will most likely go back and watch it again because every time you go back there's something else that comes out and i think i'm excited well maybe it'll come out in theaters maybe at some point in the future when we have a chance to return to theaters yeah. i just feel like what a, so. yeah what what a, a film to see on the big screen so thank you guys both for spending this time um it's always a treat talking about what you guys are up to with Chris Renolan. Um, hopefully, you know, some people will come away with a few nuggets and um, a new perspective on the power of sound because you guys don't, yeah, you guys throw some curveballs, which I think are always refreshing. And I, I just, yeah, it's so much fun to watch. So thank you both. Well, when you watch the movie again and you have a, more questions for us, how did this happen? How did that happen? You text us and you let us know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> thank well, you, Michael. Michael. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please feel free to subscribe to our audio podcast and YouTube channel where you can find out about more upcoming topics and shows and projects that we'll be covering throughout the year. And if you like audio and you like podcasts, then I think you should check out the Audio Podcast Alliance. The goal behind the Audio Podcast Alliance is to help bring more great sound stories out into the community. So definitely check out some of these shows, subscribe, 
and you can find out more information about some of the great stories being created about sound.